land is me Rock, water, animal, tree They are my song My beings here where I belong This land owns me From generations past to infinity Welcome to another episode of Law of the Land, Nature Reparations Through an Indigenous Lens. Today we have Mr. Josh Gilbert talking with us. Uh, Josh, do you just want to start by telling us who you are, where you're from and who your mob is? Yeah, thanks, Buzz. So uh, I'm Josh Gilbert. I'm a Warramai man, live and work on country up here in beautiful Gloucester. Uh, and I guess importantly for me, uh, and, and I guess in, in the heart of this podcast is really, I guess, understanding this land was first colonized for Western agriculture uh, in its current form. So this is the lands that were, was identified by um, Australia's biggest agricultural company back then and one of the biggest companies still around today. Uh, identified with the sole purpose of exporting food and fiber back over to England. So this is where I think Western agriculture really kind of started in its present form. And like we can all pretty much hazard a guess without knowing a lot of the information, but maybe you have a lot of the information as well. Like how has that colonization of the food industry spread across this country? Yeah, it's really interesting. I think for me, it's important to understand that Western agriculture really in its you know very basic sense is a colonizing act. That's where, where it fundamentally starts. So the whole idea of agriculture uh, and the way in which it was brought to Australia was really to kind of have that dominance over nature, dominance over country to, to then try and extract resources back to England. And the, the real kind of tellings of that uh, is really in the, the documentation, in the shared documents that went back to um, to England to try and raise money to have these agricultural ventures here. Um, and we know that a lot of those uh, share documents that went back were really overemphasizing some of the natural beauty of this place and, and over-engineering, I guess, some of the amounts of trees or, or natural lands that were here to then encourage that strong investment. So... Um, for me, the way in which agriculture worked here was really around um, coming and taking control over land and, and then utilizing that understanding to then try and think about what you know needed to happen on it after that relationship. So we know in that early kind of period, uh, the squatocracy is what it's kind of known as, is where people literally just went out, found land that they really liked um, would plow around the outside of it or would mark in trees to say that that's their, now theirs. And as long as they committed acts that showed ownership, uh, that really basically enabled them to own the land. So, you know, th these are the kind of the premises of keeping other people off, uh, proactively trying to, to show, you know, farming, I guess, in a sense of knocking down trees or, or um, trying to plant different things or having stock there. But also, I guess, the, the other kind of key element of that um, was to try and keep Aboriginal people off their own land, off, you know, lands that were theirs. So um, in, in all of those kind of many actions is what is the, the real basis of Western agriculture and how it really started in Australia. And I guess, look, the whole, like we're talking about Western agriculture and it's, you know, European agriculture in this specific instance because it was people from Europe who came here. And having been over there a couple of times, a very long time ago, I might add, but having been over there a couple of times, like the country's very different 
uh, in sort of Euro in Europe compared to here. And so, you know, now we can also see if we wanted to fast forward in time, like we now know that that Western agricultural practice being in place in, on this country for 250 years has led us to where we are now, where we have ecosystems collapsing and, you know, a lot of land degradation that's going to take a long time to um, put back together. What, what kind of a role do you see Indigenous people playing in some of that nature reparation space? Yeah, and, and maybe if I just rewind back to your point there before, because I think it's important that, that the idea that this was so unlike Europe, uh, I guess, was was an idea that the early settlers came with. So, um, you know, it, it's always in the top of my mind that I live in a place called Gloucester, which was named because named Gloucester because the uh, Aboriginal guides that the, the agricultural company pushed up onto this land through uh, when, they, when they started pushing up. Uh, the Aboriginal guides didn't know the name of this place. And um, so the, the uh, Western uh, or the European kind of um, leader at the time said, oh, this place kind of looks like Gloucester in England, so we, we'll name it Gloucester. And actually remarked, you know, it's, it's quite fascinating really, that the mountain ranges around this, the outside, in, in his journals he reflects that this place looks like the castles of England in ruins and, and therefore we'll name it Gloucester. Um, so it's quite, quite kind of funny, I guess. And then, you know, just down the road, we have another place called Stratford. So, you know, we, we get very European vibes here after going through towns like Karua and Burl, um, where the, the, the guides at the time obviously knew those places and, and were able to reflect that. So uh, it, it's interesting that we, we kind of have that lens over landscapes that people just kind of projected upon uh, this land, not knowing where they were or what the importance of it was and just reflecting, oh, it might be back like what we're used to and therefore we'll just hope that if we do the same thing the same way and, and you know, their interpretation of the, the same thing. I think it's important to note that many of the people that came across had no idea about agriculture uh, really. So it was that, you know, they kind of take some bits and tips and tricks that they learn um, along the way of, and then trying to impose that upon a landscape that they thought might look like what they remembered of home. So, you know, it's quite kind of fascinating all those, those elements. And for me, I, I think the important bit is, is we know that mob have been here for, for so long, have this such a, you know, ingrained understanding of this landscape and the many facets of how it works and how it operates and, and how to work with it, um, I think is important. And the, the indicators and the signs here, the way in which country speaks to us, still very much tells us what we should be doing, even though that's kind of difficult in, in the modern world. So um, I think how we, how we intertwine that knowledge, how we interweave that through what, what you know, is kind of agricultural practices, but also business practices and just the way we live um, is really fascinating. And, and it really needs that kind of rethink of what uh, th this should look like here in Australia, in, in lands that, where our people have so much deep knowledge and so much deep respect for what happens here. Yeah, and I guess, you know, when we're talking about Western farming systems, you, you know, there's a real, um, so not only are we looking at the wrong kinds of plants being used in this country, but then we need so many more inputs to make those plants successful. We need to make them grow, um, you know, we need water, 
sunlight isn't a, isn't a massive problem, but then, you know, because those plants take so many nutrients out of the actual soil, um, you know, we need those kinds of inputs with fertilizer and a whole range of other things that need to go on to make sure that, you know, farmers are getting the right yield to be able to sustain their, their um, businesses. So, um, you know, like I said earlier, that leads us to the point now where a lot of the focus in this country has been on what now has become considered as traditional farming practices just because they've been in place on this country for 200 plus years. And, you know, they're really, really struggling. People, are re farmers are really, really struggling to pay for all those inputs and then some of the returns they're getting from that are not adequate. So, you know, we've seen over the last however many years that, you know, farmers are just walking off the land because they can't turn a profit. And then if you look at the other side of the of that um, of that sector, the um, a lot of the a lot of the sellers like supermarkets, like they're trying to drive down prices as much as possible. So we see this sort of pincer move that's that's been in place on on farmers for a long period of time. Meanwhile, we have a lot of indigenous people who want to reinvigorate their own cultural practice in caring for land, their own cultural obligations in caring for land that can produce food at, at, at scale. But I guess it's just, a, it's just a different kind of scale from what the Western capitalist market is, is used to. So, you know, how, how do you think, or how have you seen some of these conversations going that you've been involved in? Yeah, I think it's, it, it's important as well to probably acknowledge our mob's role in Western systems as well in those early kind of post-colonial phases as well, you know, kind of after that kind of initial point of, of friction and uh, that initial clash between our mobs and, and uh, European uh, settlers as they came in, um, you know, that there was this kind of building of, of an industry together. And I, I think, you know, we often say and, and reflect, I think, in, in Western ag about how grand it is that, you know, people have these four generations of, uh, you know, story that they have in their family and that, that kind of connection that, that um, non-Indigenous people have. And, and while, you know, I, I think that there's some good parts about having that connection, it, it often tries to kind of debate and, and you be used as a, a way of, almost uh, avoiding or, or devaluing kind of the relationship that our mob have uh, with these countries. So for me, there's a lot of work to be done around the truth telling of what happened on, in some of these places. And it's also important to, to think about that kind of shared journey that uh, really happened on some of these landscapes. And, you know, you, you have both this uh, strong conflicted area, I, I think of where, we had non-Indigenous people who really forced our mob to lead them to water and lead them to the best sources of, of food for their cattle and, and, you know, share, you know, through all these kinds of horrendous acts around what, um, you know, certain things about country to try and extract even that knowledge from our mob. But on the flip side, you had this kind of beauty of mob saying, actually, we can, we can do this. We can sit there and farm, uh, you know, beef cattle, and then during the lull periods, we can go and practice culture and, and connect to country and still be here and, and still have that kind of relationship with where we are. So that, that kind of dual kind of relationship that mob have with Western agriculture, I think is important. 
Uh, and then we know that, you know, that, that was kind of happening in the, the early 1800s. In, in my family, 1825 here, we, we have some of the early documents that talk about our, mobs have, our mob having that connection with white settlers. Um, and then even later, uh, you know, that, that that relationship kept going. You know, you know, Western Australia, for instance, relied so heavily on Indigenous people that they increased their uh, the workforce of Indigenous people. And, you know, work certainly wasn't paid. It was paid in rations and it wasn't the best working conditions. But they increased that that labour that Indigenous people were going by six, six times what it was uh, in a period of 20 years, up to 12,000 people. Um, so the, there was double the amount of, of mob uh, and, you know, this is times when records weren't kept very well, but there was double the amount of mob who were working uh, in Western Australia in Western agriculture than what there is mob working in kind of Western agriculture today. Um, so, you know, it kind of tells about where this, where the relationship's fallen down. And, and maybe the other important part is the, the role of stolen wages and when the equal wages decision came through, we know that non-Indigenous people had this huge kind of uproar around this. Like uh, we had livestock organisations proactively go in the newspapers on the front page and, you know, title our people as lazy so that they could try and, and pay, you know, cents in the dollar. Um, we had provisions that basically allowed pastoralists to, to describe our workers as slow workers so that they could pay up to a third of the price of the equal wages that they were going to be mandated to pay so that we could actually be involved in that. So we, we have this kind of period of, um, you know, the early 1800s up until the, the late 1900 or mid to late 1900s of this kind of reliance upon Indigenous labour. We had mob who were living on stations who were engaging in kind of the Western ag systems during the day. And then, you know, being forced really to say, you know, here's some rations, but you need to go out on country and, and hunt and, and, you know, try and gather um, whatever you were doing here before, you know, white people were here to then try and, you know, keep surviving. So that's the relationship that non-Indigenous people have with some of these food sources. It was like, oh, here's, here's your little bit, but go out and, and do the rest yourself on, on the lands that we're just like smashing with cattle and, and livestock and completely overgrazing. And, you know, often those um, relationships are really fraught because you've got mob on there, that they're, they're working, trying to get the rations to then support the rest of their food. But, um, you know, the, the food that they're trying to get from their own country isn't as available because of the farming practices that were there. Um, so anyway, that, that's my kind of history lesson in saying that what's here, um, it has a very convoluted history and that we need to kind of acknowledge all of that and, and understand all of those friction points to get to a point now to say, right, let, let's heal, let's engage in truth-telling, let's understand what this joint history and the contention and the relationships that were formed over the last 250 years and actually sit down and say, right, let's start with a blank piece of paper and say, what does agriculture in Australia look like? How do we write our own story that brings out the absolute best of mobs, knowledge and understanding and, and practices around, you know, um, of food, Australian foods, really, and understand that while there might be some elements of, of Western agriculture in that now because of the way in which economies move over time, 
it's only through bringing the best of all that together can we actually create the story that's truly Australian rather than, you know, just hoping that we continue European farming and oh, we have this really attractive bush foods industry that, you know, no one wants to um, to really talk about in terms of, West, you know, Western farming groups that they just kind of say, oh, that's that's for Indigenous people to, to do. But the problem is, is that mob aren't benefiting from that. Like less than 1% of the, the revenue from those are actually going back to mob's hands. It's all being taken by non-Indigenous people as well. So, you know, only together, building those relationships, understanding the history, understanding the hurt and the passion, can we sit down and say, right, what's this going to look like going forward? Yeah, look, that's a very complex history that you outlined. And yeah, thanks for, for sharing some of that information that you've gathered over the years makes me think of where I grew up. So I grew up in Bundaberg in Queensland and, you know, sugarcane was the big crop when I was growing up there. And, you know, growing up, the Aboriginal mobs all mixed with South Sea Island, the mobs who were all brought over there to work in the in the cane fields. And, you know, all of our family members, all of our ancestors kind of worked together in those, yeah. in those kinds of uh, endeavours. And, you know, a lot of the other nation building that went on throughout, you know, all of the states across the country, which led on to some of the stolen wages, like you like you sort of talked about. Like there is a really complex history there that um, we need to find ways to um, educate the rest of the population about. But then that leads on to a sort of complicated future as well. Like we need to unwind a lot of that or sort of educate people, then unwind a lot of the issues around land. Um, and that can be access to land, ownership of land, you know, like you said, it was very easy easy for um, a lot of the settlers or colonisers to come in and just stake out their land and say, this is mine now. And then that might have been handed down to families over generations. So people have built a lot of generational wealth off those kinds of practices, while Indigenous people and traditional owners have been pushed to the sidelines. So, you know, now... As you said, you know, the bush foods industry is a pretty big industry. I think the last time I heard it's $100 million annually um, and less than 1% of that benefits um, Indigenous people. So, you know, we need to make sure that whatever solutions are put in place do benefit Indigenous people who hold that knowledge. And as I said earlier, who have the cultural obligation to get back on the country and um, manage country in the way that their ancestors had and put systems in place so that future generations can benefit from that as well. So it's a very big, complex, um, oddly shaped beast that we have to try and wrangle in the next few years. How do we do it? Yeah, I, and I think it's important, you know, it, it's going to take years to, to figure this out, right? Uh, and the, sorry, the other thing I, I think it's worthwhile noting is that mob right across Australia have very different histories with this. And, uh, you know, I, I generalize quite a bit around uh, the relationships. And uh, I think it's important to just acknowledge that different mob have, have had very different experiences around colonization and um, the practices of agriculture on their land. So I, I think, you know, while there's some some uh, strength in understanding kind of the, those general trends, that there are very site-specific examples. And I just don't want to... Um, generalize too much because I, I think each mob need to, to grapple with that with uh, white society in their, their own areas. But I, I think fundamentally for me, um, the, the signs for, for change are slowly getting there. Uh, the National Farmers Federation a few years ago, for instance, had their $100 billion roadmap that basically said, 
uh, we're okay with Indigenous people being involved as long as they kind of step out of the way and let us keep farming their land and not be involved in native title determinations which restrict our practices there. Um, so so that was the relationship a few years ago. They've just released a report, I think, which uh, shows some kind of acknowledgement that they're going to have to engage with mob. And while I, I, I'm quite critical, I think, in some ways about that report, but the very fact that you have a, a report that's entitled um, Working with Indigenous uh, Groups and the Importance of Indigenous People in, in Western or in Agriculture at Large, and you have a picture of a cow on the front rather than the mob, um, I, I think for me it shows that kind of relationship needs to be challenged a bit. But um, I, I think it's interesting that they're slowly kind of looking at it. We also know um, some of the big agricultural companies are now saying, hang on, what does diversity look like for us that isn't just gender diversity? How do we actually um, work with mob here in Australia to, to understand and diversify our workforces and to build good relationships? And that's kind of a, a new kind of flag in the ground that I think we need to keep working on. And maybe the, the last thing, um, and, and you so eloquently put it, I think, when at the session that we did uh, a few weeks ago together, which was really sharing that even through, even though we've had all this colonization, this horrible history, even though uh, non-Indigenous people have benefited so much from intergenerational wealth, we're now in a position where even through the, their own like Western legal frameworks and uh, legislations and laws, we now have Indigenous ownership and, you know, ownership, uh, I think, you know, is a very contested word, but um, Indigenous interests in lands of almost 60% of Australia, we know that there's a closing the gap target that seeks to increase that by a further 15% uh, around access to land. So we, we could very much be in a position where 75% of Australia um, in terms of Western legal rights, kind of under, is you know understood and, and is held by Indigenous people. And currently, we have a Western agricultural system that relies upon about fifty four point one seven, I think, is the, the number of, of land um, that that's needed for for farming practices as it currently stands, and that's going to be uh, implemented and, and impeded by climate change. So, throughout all of that, basically, uh, my my headline is is that um, Western agriculture and, and agriculture at large is going to have to rely upon the relationships with Indigenous people. There's going to be a crossover of at least kind of 20, 30 odd percent of lands that are going to be owned or, or have a legal interest by Indigenous people that non-Indigenous people will want to access to try and you know, farm upon or, or to have those relationships. What that means for me is that while we're in a pretty good place to say, actually, this is what the practices we want on our country. Uh, these are what farming, or you know, whether it's farming kangaroo grass or, or bush, uh, any other type of bush food, for instance, this is what we want that those practices to be. We're happy to sit it side by side with Western agricultural systems to a certain extent, whether we bring steers in and graze them on kangaroo grass after you know, we've harvested the seed, for instance, or whatever that relationship is. Um, but that power and, and that, that understanding of that mob will hold the keys to that is really important. And that's why we need the relationships from just a purely, uh, you know, statistical number or innumerable piece of, uh, um, of information and data. That, that's the kind of environment we see ourselves in. And that kind of, for me, stands, well, well, how are those relationships going to look? Because at the moment, the data says that despite mob 
owning a lot of that land or, or having legal rights over a lot of that, that there is next to no benefit going back to them. And that's the kind of things that we need to challenge and break down. Yeah. And look, I think from a sort of activation um, side as well, like the Indigenous people do have control over a lot of land, but they're kind of land rich and cash poor. Like they don't have a lot of money to, and, and because the legislation controlling that land doesn't let you really do much with it. So, you know, we need to be, be able to um, put together the resources to actually implement some innovative projects. And I feel like now because we're in this period where sustainability and you know, renewable energy and carbon sequestration and uh, biodiversity, all these kinds of topics are being talked about pretty much in isolation from each other. I feel like there's a really interesting way that blackfellas are in a really good position to be able to implement something that brings all of those together. And an example I would give is, so the Western Yalangi people up around Mariba and sort of Western Mariba, I've been up there a few times in the last uh, couple of years and they are working with a non-Indigenous um, pastoralist who has the pastoral lease, so he grazes cattle. There are um, small miners who also have mining leases that access that country where they're like panning for gold and doing some other interesting stuff. Um, the Western Yellowji Ranges are out there co-managing that, that, that country with the pastoralists and implementing um, savannah burning where they're getting carbon credits for doing burn, uh, cool burns during the cooler months, which is generating some decent income for them. But what they're actually burning is a lot of kangaroo grass and, and spear grass. And at the moment, I'm talking with them to say, well, I, I know you have this role in the, in the carbon uh, space, but I think there's another role for you in the native food space and native grain space. And that's just one place in Cape York that I've seen. And Cape York is huge and I've only been to like small parts of it. Uh, but I would gather that those kinds of grasses grow um, throughout that, that whole region, let alone the Northern Territory, let alone Northwest and Western Australia as well. So I think there's a massive potential to bring a lot of these things together um, and to learn from them so that we can implement projects in some of the southern parts of the, of the um, country where I've seen a lot of big old pastoral leases that are now severely degraded being handed back to Aboriginal people. And Aboriginal people just don't have the resources to sort of reconstitute that land in the way that it should be according to their cultural law. So I think there are ways that we can come up with some positive examples and some innovative solutions to how this is done, but we really need to have adequate resourcing to, to be able to make that possible. Are you, have you been involved in any conversations where people are looking at what resourcing might look like for some of these solutions? Yeah, I, I am. And I, I think I, I absolutely agree. I think it's certainly important that we, um, that we are resourcing that adequately and, and, you know, fundamentally it is cash, I, I guess it is the important aspect of this, that while it's in you know, the land statistics are, are important, that the, the cash follow up and making sure that we're supporting mob on the ground who are doing this work um, is, is funded appropriately. And really, I think what, what we, we do need is to have mob who are helping with funding decisions to really understand this, this need, the, the desire as well that, that mob have right across the country and work with, um, you know, large philanthropics and, and large funders as well that, that, you know, there can be a commercial return on some of this stuff. 
that we need to actually start, you know, understanding what these financial markets are doing, how we can best cater to their needs and, and work together to try and identify some of the real prime opportunities here uh, and, and support them. The other thing I, I think it's important to note is the lack of people uh, and the lack of mob wanting to do some of this work. Um, and, and while, you know, and, and I use this as an example, I think to say, we really need to support the people who are doing it because we don't un understand the importance of those um, people on the ground who are just really leading these conversations and the importance of those and profiling those people to bring on the next generation. So we know, uh, and, and while university is only one avenue, we know there's less than five Indigenous ag graduates from every university right across Australia every year. Um, so, you know, in the last five years, we're only talking about 25 people uh, who, are, who are coming out with agricultural degrees um, at, at, you know, at most. We know that uh, the current employment of Indigenous people in, in agriculture at large sits at only about 2.1%, um, very high representation as people would probably expect in the Northern Territory and the lowest representation actually in Victoria, which is surprising to me given treaty and some of the other work that's happening down there so we also need to, to you know obviously bolster up the the finance and the access to capital that's needed but equally we need to be showcasing and really profiling some of this work to get young mob to look at this this sector and say hang on we we actually belong there it is important that we can see ourselves in agricultural communications we we look at um you know it, whether it's uh native foods or whether it's western agriculture that we can actually pick up a document and say oh there's mob and, and you know I, this is a welcoming space and when we look at uh you know the report i mentioned before that has a picture of a cow on the front cover that's not going to happen so we need to actually really challenge uh some of the things that are being done and, and build that out we need to have companies who commit uh you know not only uh in terms of employment but procurement to indigenous businesses in this space as well um but but in, certainly with employment to try and you know boost that 2.1%. We know most agricultural companies probably don't have that. Um, that's the 2.1% is really the labor rate um, that needs to be worked upon. Uh, so we, we need to kind of change the dynamics of, of Indigenous involvement in, in agriculture. We need to build this pipeline of talent and, and really, I guess, have mob uh, right across the, the industry, uh, showcasing our skills and our talent to say to, to agriculture at large, hey, we belong here and we need our own space to keep working uh, in this area. Yeah, look, I totally agree. I think that's a really good um, plan for how we can um, change some of the populations working in this, in this space. I want to um, talk a little bit now about biodiversity and, you know, what what kind of information can you share with us about, you know, how how um, landscapes were changed um, around European colonisation and what kind of opportunities there are for um, Indigenous people to get back into those landscapes and change some of that vegetation mix and even things like, like for the first time ever in the state of the in the most recent state of the environment report was the first time that hard hoofed animals like sheep, like um, cattle, were considered as um, invasive species. Like what what kind of opportunities do you see for 
um, Indigenous people to be back in the landscape and reintroducing native biodiversity. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, this is where the local kind of approach needs to be taken, right? And, um, you know, that the we need mob right across the country doing this. Uh, and while, you know, range of programs, I think, are important to, to showing that the protection of landscapes and, and to try and promote biodiversity to a certain extent, we actually need people right across the country who are, you know, on the ground doing things, even just trialing and, and seeing if new things are working or not. And, um, and seeing whether the, the approach of, uh, you know, traditional practices due to climate change and, and, you know, colonization are going to continue working, I guess, in, in these new environments that are almost kind of so different to what, what are known, but we know that mob have kind of adapted throughout the last 250 years as well. So, um, I, I think it's important to, to recognize all of those things are kind of happening at once. Um, but for me, I think you know, the way in which we understand these kind of climates and the way in which we understand the environment is important. And, you know, there, there are some kind of testaments to what was what was here prior to colonization in, in kind of the way in which the landscape looks, but also in some of the, the non-Indigenous kind of terminology for some of these landscapes. One of the, the best examples I always think of um, when I drive down south um, to see my nan and, and to go to university there's this road um down towards canberra that's called chain of ponds road or something like that and uh, often as a kid used to drive past and go well, you know what why would you name it that like it just makes no sense but when you actually start understanding why it was named that um and that you know chain of ponds is actually how mob used to retain water in certain areas so that they could access it and that was the kind of damming infrastructure that was being put in place um, you know, so many thousands of years ago that chain of ponds is actually a real testament to Aboriginal ingenuity and uh, our thinking and adaptability to landscapes of keeping water. Um, we know that there's kind of all of these kind of hidden bits and we need to start thinking of them at large uh, and, and to try and draw some of those out, not, not because we want non-Indigenous people to benefit from them, but so that we actually can engage with them as Aboriginal people and and really think about what their place is um, in, in modern society. So for me, I, I think there's a whole heap of shifts and elements that need to happen. We need all those kind of local understandings and connecting with elders um, and, and really listening, I think, to some of their stories and their understanding of landscape to then try and think about how it's moved and adapted uh, into what we see it as now. And to, then to really like look across the country and see the amazing work that some of the organizations are doing, um, like Black Duck Foods, for instance, around native grains, to say, well, well, hang on, does that? can I apply that up here? And can we build a relationship around seeing and trialing whether that's going to happen on my country and whether we can create um, that partnership or whether it's you know trialing a new native grain to see what the benefits of that are. Uh, all of those kind of elements are important to recreating um, I, I guess a First Nations economy that's bolstered by uh, our cultural and biodiversity understanding. Yeah, I think um, cultural econ economic development, like if you just outlined there, is something that's been a bit of a theme for this podcast. Um, and it's, it's a really interesting space to have conversations around, but I'm really getting itchy to actually start implementing some stuff or or having some um, place-based conversations around what this might look like. And I think 
you know, you're, you're, you're right. I think we need to have a bit more of an understanding about place-based opportunities because I think one of the mistakes um, that we don't want to fall into that has been a sort of colonial mistake is thinking that you can grow the same things everywhere because that's not the way that this country was. Um, and it's not the way that our people are. Um, you know, we're a very diverse people. So obviously, you know, diversity of diets and, and diversity of biodiversity is also something that would have happened everywhere. But, you know, the, the sort of cultural economic development is going to be some really interesting conversations that I'm looking forward to being involved in um, for the next few years. Um, what kind of... Um, opportunities have you seen with your local mob around cultural economic development? Yeah, it's it's an interesting space. Uh, I think for me, you know, Warramaya people are, are kind of, you know, have this relationship with agriculture and, um, you know, I I guess when I grew up here as a kid, we we're always taught, you know, our mob were, were obviously really resilient, but, but had this like kind of great connection with, um, with seafood and, you know, had that strong um, sought after kind of priority of being clinging to the coast, I guess, and, and having the ability to, to um, have the best of, you know, this beautiful kind of um, mountain range snow country here in the West and, and then going over to the, the East and sitting on the coast and eating seafood during different times of the year. So for me, I think there's that best of both um, worlds here, which we're, we're super fortunate to have. Um, and I, I look at what some of our mob are doing kind of down in South Warren, my country, I guess. Um, you know, I, our, our families are very much, I think, caught up and um, challenged by some of the, the historical impacts of what's happened on these lands. But, um, you know, there, there's some beautiful things happening here in Warren, my country. We've got mob down in the South who, uh, you know, we've got the sand dune adventures with mob, you know, going out and, and sharing some of that, you know, on a, on a quadrilla which is exciting. We've got, um, you know, native foods being grown down there. We've got different businesses slowly popping up, but there is a lot more enablement that's needed around that um, and a lot more showcasing. And I think for me, the other thing that's important is, um, well, in Australia, we have Supply Nation, I guess, that certifies uh, Indigenous businesses. What we we don't have, particularly when I think about cultural foods and and the connection to that. We don't really have a, a trademark system that certifies indigenous products or, or products that are grown by indigenous people. It's coming. Yeah, and it's a, a massive gap that the US have been doing since, I think, eight, 1985, 86, when they actually sued the government over there for their racist interventions uh, and not having access to the same opportunities. So, um, you know, who knows what will happen in Australia, but um, you know, they've developed a trademark system over there that, that certifies the producer. It doesn't matter what they're producing. Uh, it actually certifies that um, the products are grown by by mob. And we, we need that kind of in the cultural tourism area as well, but also in, in native foods that and, and kind of indigenous foods at large that we should be really thinking about how do we, how do we fetch a premium price for really great, culturally grown products where mob have either used their knowledge system of, of growing native foods or native grains or mob who are using their skills and cultural understanding to grow beef cattle. How do we actually certify that and say that that person is growing a premium product and are therefore able to get a bit more money out of them to, 
you know, as they, they should be getting because of the huge amount of benefits that they provide back to their community. So we know, you know, Indigenous businesses are 100 times more likely to hire more mob on the ground, that it, you're not just funding a business, you're funding a whole community. There's, you know, mob giving back in, in a whole range of different ways. How do we actually, um, you know, support these people on the front lines in these kind of very... Um, nuanced areas in which whatever they're doing and provide that support so that then that can reciprocate down the community and support more people wanting to be involved. That's where I think we need to head. Yeah, I'll have to share with you the Aboriginal Carbon Foundation's core benefits verification framework because it does a lot of that work around collecting um, all of the um, outcomes of the carbon projects Um and I think, you know, we can use that when it comes to the sort of native foods industry. Like it's the same sort of principle. It's a really sort of indigenous, indigenous, indigenous to indigenous way of collecting that kind of information. But, yeah, I think um, the, the other thing that made me smile while you were talking is around, you know, when it comes to developing um, Aboriginal um, cultural businesses, well, not even cultural businesses, but... Indigenous business, there seems to be this uh, expectation that you're doing this social good within your own communities, whereas there's no expectation that you're doing that if you're non-Indigenous. So I think a lot of um, a lot of the conversations I've had around cultural economic development has that sort of social enterprise um, model sort of underlying it because, you know, a lot of the communities, they want to be able to pass on some of those benefits and ensure that... Um, everybody is able to share in whatever outcomes that business is able to um, produce. But I don't think that the market at large and whatever market that is should have that expectation that businesses do produce social outcomes within their community. So, you know, we'll have to do a bit of work to, um, to try and ensure that there isn't that pressure and that expectation put onto cultural economic development, even though I think that that's going to be some of the focus of those businesses anyway. Yeah, there's a lot of stereotypes, I think, unfortunately, that happen when we think about Indigenous involvement in, in you know, either business or, or sector-wide kind of areas. And uh, I think we, they're the things that often need challenging because it's not, it, it seems to be, uh, I think, when we, and, and I think we, and I use this term, I, I think, to not just say non-Indigenous people, but even mob, I think, at times fall into this trap that, uh, we, we need to have a, a practice or a business that's, that does a certain thing and, and then therefore has all these other benefits as well or, or acts in a certain way. And I think we need to challenge that a little bit and just say, um, go, go and do what you're passionate about. Go and do what you're interested in. Go do the, the area that, that matters most to you and, and let's support that. And if you just happen to be a black fella doing it, then that's awesome. And, and that's okay that... You, your cultural identity and who you are as an Aboriginal person isn't caught up in what you're practically doing. Um, you know, c- certainly there's obligations, certainly there's things that you should be following and, and certainly your, c- your connection to country and, and all those elements are important. But what you what you do um, does not need to be kind of, you know, um, it, it's not independent, I guess, of, of who you are as a person. You can be an Aboriginal person just doing these things. Um, at the same time, rather than having to be an Aboriginal person doing those things. Um, and yeah, I, I think there's a, a real challenge and mind sh- mindset shift that needs to happen there, not only for non-Indigenous people, but for our own mob as well, who I, I think at times get caught up by saying, oh, we need to be doing all this other stuff as well. 
um, and, and unfortunately kind of don't don't just get the opportunity to run their core business um, and, and let it thrive and then do the other things later. It's kind of when you, when you think about um, mobs sitting down to do a, a business plan, there's kind of this other box that's like, oh, we need to fill in all these other great things that we'll be doing as well. Um, and, and while, yeah, that, that's certainly important, we need to just make sure we have great businesses at the same time. Yeah, and I guess we, we need to be given a bit of a space in the business development. Like I feel like there's a lot of pressure on Indigenous people who are starting businesses because, you know, we haven't had the, the business development history of non-Indigenous people, obviously, but that doesn't mean that, you know, culturally and traditionally pre-colonisation, we weren't involved in enterprise, we weren't involved in trade, we weren't involved in a whole range of other sectors that could be considered to be businesses but in this Western framework, I feel like we need to have a lot of the pressure taken off people so that they are allowed to fail because, you know, a lot of businesses fail. But I feel like there's a lot of pressure on Indigenous people to not not fail because it's it would be a really bad story. Yeah, and we need to create that support, like even just within mob to have those conversations, right? And and have that that opportunity to come and say, well, how, how did you do this? What, what's been that practice? How do we learn from each other to build this up into a space that, um, you know, is, is challenging enough, I think. And, you know, the, the, just that added bit of guidance as to what's been done before or what learnings have been done before all kind of paint this new picture of where we need to head and, and how we kind of help, help mob thrive kind of generally, I guess. Well, we've managed to go from um, the food sector to the business sector to biodiversity and carbon and a whole range of other stuff. And I feel like we could talk for ages, but uh, we might have to have you on again some other time to continue on some of these conversations. Yeah, no worries, brother. Thank you so much for having me and really well done with the podcast. I think, you know, these are the fundamental questions and the stories that we need to continue having. And we we need to be working together really to build this sector and, and all sectors back up um, to, to really kind of acknowledge where we are uh, as a society now, but what that future is for, for our kids and grandkids. Sounds like a great place to leave it. So thanks very much, Josh. No, thanks, they won't take it away from me. This land is mine. This land is me. land owns me this land is mine this land is me they won't take it away they won't take it away they won't take it away from me